Hello friends, it's Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. Maybe not quite the start of history, but um, we'll see if we can't do anything about that. Starting history through podcasting. That's what we're doing. Better better history through podcasting. Anyway, my name is Alex Hochuli. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. This podcast is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, who are in the UK. And this episode is produced by Phil. So I'm going to hand over to him to explain what it's about. Hey, Alex. George. Hello, everyone. So today we're talking about a book. Um, we're having the author on to discuss his book, recently published. It's called Corona Climate, Chronic Emergency, War Communism in the 21st Century. And uh, I guess uh, regular listeners of the pod will know why my eyes lit up about the, that particular title. So um, it's a book essentially as... Because you love as, war, right? <laughs> As proposing, yeah, it's a book about proposing radical political solutions to deal with um, the intertwined crises uh, linked to uh, the ongoing pandemic, obviously, but also the um, crisis of global warming. Yeah, I'm particularly keen to I'm particularly keen to talk to Andreas because I was eager to read the book, precisely because I was um, I was intrigued by the notion of applying the. Um, war communism, which was the, um, as the name suggests, the wartime model that the Bolsheviks imposed in the during the Russian Civil War, um, in very kind of desperate circumstances, and how far that could uh, offer anything to us today um, to deal with the issues of climate change, and um, and generally what kind of radical politics offers to us to, in order to tackle those challenges. So as I'm looking forward to talking to Andreas. Yes, yeah, it's, it's got the it's the three C's, isn't it? Corona, climate, communism. All the all the good uh, the good stuff in the book, and hopefully in the discussion as well. So yeah, we sh- we should uh, crack on. All right, let's call Andreas up. Hi, Andreas, and welcome to Afabunga Bunga. Hi, Philip. So we've uh, we're excited to have you on and to talk about your book, and um, so to get stuck right into it uh, in the book. Um, you draw parallels and contrasts between the corona pandemic and global warming. And I was wondering if you could briefly talk us through these similarities and differences. Yeah, so this book was written back in uh, April when the lockdowns were uh, really fully implemented and uh, taking effect across Europe and elsewhere. And at that point, the memory of uh, 2019 was still pretty fresh in people's minds. And 2019, if, if we can still recall that, was pretty much dominated by climate politics. Uh, it, it marked the peak so far in the popular mobilization by the climate movement with the school strikes. And yeah, it, it ended with time uh, anointing Greta Thunberg the person of the year. And it, it was on the top of the agenda for much of last year. And then... The pandemic happened, and uh, over the, the first weeks of the lockdowns, quite a few people asked themselves, so, okay, uh, states are clearly prepared to break some long-standing neoliberal taboos and interfere quite dramatically in uh, the uh, working of markets and even uh, uh, break with some of the sacrosanct limits of, of private property. But they were not prepared to do so, apparently, when it came to the climate crisis, because even though 2019 had all these mobilizations, there was still very little in terms of concrete state action uh, last year. So uh, the book begins a little bit by, by discussing this. Why, why were states prepared to act on uh, the coronavirus pandemic, but not on the climate crisis? And uh, I, I, don't, I don't think I, I, I solved that puzzle fully, but some factors that go some way towards an explanation might be that uh, to begin with, this pandemic very early on in its development uh, struck deep into the affluent north. So this pandemic was transformed into a political crisis really in the moment when it spread in northern Italy, one of the classical affluent parts of, of Europe. And by now, it's, uh, there, there's quite a remarkable uh, list of uh, leading politicians, even f- politicians of the far right, that have contracted 
COVID-19, Boris Johnson, Jair Bolsonaro, Donald Trump. These are just the most famous of them. And they, they personally have never suffered any consequences of the climate crisis. So uh, the pandemic hit elements of the dominant classes inside the, the advanced capitalist countries in a way that the climate crisis hasn't done so far. This might be one part of the explanation, although it clearly is more co complicated than that. Uh, there are others as well, notably the, these, all of these measures, these lockdowns and restrictions and interferences with business as usual were advertised as temporary, of course. They didn't mark any, any permanent shift or transition in our economies, at least uh, they, they weren't announced as such. Uh, rather, they, they would be temporary measures and then we'd go back to normal again. A, a transition away from fossil fuels would be forever. It would be a matter of leaving fossil fuels in the ground for the duration of, of human civilization. And that's, of course, a shift of a completely different magnitude. Now, there are other factors that explain, uh, that, that ha have to be taken into account if we, if, we're, if we want to explain this contrast. But at the end of the day, my conclusion is that the contrast really is an illusion because states, and we're now, I mean, we're almost a year into the pandemic, or we'll be in a few months at least. States still haven't in any way addressed the drivers of the pandemic, possibly with the exception of some Chinese legislative efforts to crack down on wildlife trade. But apart from that, nothing in the way of trying to uh, mitigate the problem of emerging infectious diseases at the root has appeared so far. And, and that, in that regard, it's the, the passivity is very similar to the one on the climate crisis. So uh, I think the, the, the proper analog to the kind of lockdowns and uh, social distancing measures and restrictions and all of these things that we've seen during this year would be evacuating people from a fire zone or a, a hurricane uh, zone uh, or sending in firefighters to combat wildfires as in California or, or Oregon in, in recent months, uh, where state apparatuses go in and try to fight the symptoms of the climate crisis. And they are to some extent capable of doing that, but they have so far proven themselves completely incapable of addressing the drivers of global heating. And it's exactly the same with a problem of emerging infectious diseases coming from wild animals, that states have proven themselves to some extent uh, prepared to treat the symptoms during this year, including working to find a vaccine, but they have done nothing, virtually nothing, to go after the drivers of this problem. So you discuss these crises in terms of a conjoined and integrated chronic emergency, as per the title of the book. Um, and I mean, a lot of your discussion, I, I think it's um, fair to say, is um, reliant on the analogies of warfare. So battling, fighting, um, invoking the idea of the, the desperate collective mobilization of resources, of casualties and so on. And um, I suppose it, it needs to be tackled head on because obviously... The, I mean, conceptualizing social challenges in terms of violent war and states of emergency has traditionally been one of the hallmarks of conservative and authoritarian politics. And you discuss some of these concerns and criticisms in the second half of the book. So how do you meet these criticisms? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, well, uh, to begin with, I think that... Uh, Quite early on in this pandemic, back in spring, most of the left worldwide concluded that this is actually an emergency. There were some voices that reflexively refused to accept that this is an emergency. Most notably, of course, Agamben, the Italian philosopher who... Yeah. Uh, came out and said early on that this is all just another uh, way to, to maintain the state of exception. It's uh, uh, an attempt by states to impose uh, even more authoritarian uh, tyranny and, and stuff like that. And he, he sort of made a fool of himself because he didn't acknowledge the seriousness of the situation. Now, my uh, argument in this particular book uh, around war and war, war communism and those things is in a way an attempt to say that emergency politics is not, cannot be 
uh, a right-wing monopoly. There is a left version of emergency politics. And there is a tradition of um, left politics that is about combating catastrophe. And it sits very, very deep in the revolutionary Marxist tradition, uh, particularly with the break of, of, with reformism uh, around the time of the, the First World War. The, uh, the realization in the years leading up to the First World War that we're heading towards absolute disaster. And when the disaster eventually happened, all the, the, uh, the, the efforts of the revolutionary Marxists of Luxembourg, Liebknecht and Lenin and the Bolsheviks, uh, these efforts were directed towards transforming this, uh, this catastrophe, this emergency into a crisis of the drivers uh, that that uh, propelled uh, propel these disasters. So it's a way, it, it's an attempt to try to resuscitate, if you, if you like, that kind of uh, uh, left-wing legacy, another um, paradigm for, uh, for emergency politics than the one that the ruling order, uh, the, the, sorry, the, the ruling classes and the prevailing order uh, keep reproducing. Uh, now, th that doesn't mean that this kind of, uh, of left-wing emergency politics is without its risks, evidently. Uh, emergency, by definition, is a situation filled with risks. Risks mm -hmm. for complete collapse, for failure, for mass casualties, and for political degeneration of, of various kinds, as we saw evidently in the case of the Russian Revolution. So it's not a way of, uh, of saying that these things are simple. It's a way of, of, it's an attempt to say, we need to acknowledge that we are in emergencies and it's, it's quite clear that uh, we're almost standing in a shower of emergencies one after another. This year, it's been very obvious with the combination of the pandemic and extreme weather events across the globe. And these events, uh, all indications are that these events will, will uh, worsen and, and, and intensify in the years to come. Uh, so there's no denying that. We can't hide away from that. The question is, what do we do in this situation? How do we formulate a, a progressive politics for this chronic emergency that allows us to get out of it rather than sink just deeper into uh, an endless series of disasters? Okay. Um, it's an interesting response, and I suppose we'll, um, uh, it's, we'll have to come back to this, uh, to the question of um, tackling the drivers and also the points that you raise about the tradition of emergency politics on the left and, and, um, and of course, the risks of political degeneration. But just before then, just to talk a bit more about the, um, the so we've talked about the um, parallels and contrasts that you mentioned between the corona pandemic and global warming, but I also wanted to do some of the historic parallels. So um, specifically with respect to war communism. So, um, this was the model that the Bolshevik revolutionary government adapted in, adopted sorry, in the early days of their rule. And in the, this was in the kind of desperate circumstances of the Russian Civil War, when they were in danger of being overrun by um, the counter-revolutionary white armies, as well as foreign intervention forces. So it, how do you, what are the parallels that you draw or that you see as useful to extract from that particular experience um, and that might um, help inform, as you put, the, uh, the emergency politics of the left today? Yeah. So I'll try to respond to that by, by, by starting uh, with, with uh, some of the aspects of your previous questions. Uh, question, namely uh, the, the use of war metaphors and things like that in my book. And uh, I, I, I confess to being guilty of that, but when I wrote this book back in, in, in April, this kind of rhetoric uh, around war was completely dominant in how the pandemic was perceived. Uh, and dealt with by everyone from, from Donald Trump to Emmanuel Macron and, uh, and uh, all sorts of politicians who spoke about this as a war. And in the background, in, in relation to the climate issue, there was the discussion of, of wartime mobilization as a sort of model for how a society can concentrate and mobilize its resources with the uh, uh, very focused aim of defeating an existential enemy. And that analogy re-emerged, reappeared in the early phases of the pandemic when 
you had um, instances of uh, car factories converting production uh, in the US and in Sweden and uh, elsewhere to things that were needed to, to combat the, the pandemic. And uh, uh, parallels were drawn to what was done during the Second World War to defeat the Nazis. So uh, there is a longstanding debate uh, and use of that parallel, that, that analogy in climate discussions based on the realization that if we ever start mitigating climate change and uh, cut emissions, we will have to do so extremely rapidly because we waited so long. So we're currently talking about something like uh, annual emissions cuts by maybe 7% in the rich countries to be able to keep global heating below 1.5 or even just two degrees of global heating. That's how long we have waited. That's how much CO2 is already in the air. That's how uh, extremely tight the limits are if we want to uh, avoid exceeding those very dangerous thresholds. Now, <clears throat> I do think that that analogy with the Second World War is largely apt precisely because uh, Second World War was a lesson in the capacity of states, um, including the, U the United States, although clearly uh, Stalinist Russia was superior in some respects, but uh, let's stay with the US. In that the US, um, um, the US government, the US state apparatus made a decision to convert its productive apparatus to uh, things that were required to defeat Hitler and uh, did so uh, in a very, uh, how shall I put it, very, very well, speedy, robust, centralized manner uh, that was adequate to the task. Uh, Although it is the case that the analogy has problems. And one of them is that uh, in the Second World War, the US, the dominant classes in the US uh, did not stand to lose anything in the long term from this kind of mobilization. Um, although the auto companies might, companies might have been inconvenienced by having to shift to producing tanks and uh, other things for the front, they, uh, they were not nationalized for the long term. They were not deposed. Their business models weren't called into question. Uh, to the contrary, the, the, the war ended by just... <laughs> further entrenching the rule of the dominant capitalist classes in the US. But here, in this situation, we're facing uh, uh, something completely different, namely the need to not only dethrone, but to abolish certain factions of the capitalist class in their entirety for good, namely those very powerful uh, uh, capitalists, um, uh, capitalist corporations that are in the business of extracting coal and oil and gas. They have to cease to exist as such corporations uh, and never return. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, some have pointed out, pointed out rightly that this, this is one reason why the Second, war, Second World War analogy is so imperfect, that you, don't have that you didn't have that element of, uh, um, of, of taking power and even existence away from certain parts of the capitalist class yeah. in, uh, in that situation. Uh, another very important uh, weakness in that analogy is that uh, clearly the US wartime mobilization rested on the consumption of oil and in induced a, uh, uh, the greatest surge in oil consumption in, in history. So just so, so if, yeah. if I can clarify then. Sure, so, sure, sure. So what I'm, so what, what it seems to me you're saying is that the um, it's not so much the um, uh, specific content of Bolshevik policy or um, what the Bolsheviks did, but it's more that um, it because what you're proposing requires the elimination of certain powerful entrenched capitalist interests that you are dissatisfied with the idea of a Green New Deal. And this is why you prefer to call your um, proposals Communism. Is that right? <laughs> well, yes, sort of. I, I don't know I'm, if I'm extremely dissatisfied with the Green New Deal. I mean, the, the Green New Deal would be amazing if, if we had it. The, the, the point here 
that I'm trying to make is what the Bolsheviks did was that they faced a sort of chronic emergency, one disaster after another. They were encircled by enemies, as you, uh, as you described. They suffered famine, a collapsing economy, and uh, one epidemic after another, uh, and a, a range of other problems. So they were in a chronic emergency, and they, they struggled desperately to tackle this chronic emergency again and get out of it. And they committed a lot of excesses and mistakes that we don't, and atrocities that we don't want to copy. Just as we don't want to, no one wants to copy the bombings of, of Hiroshima or Nagasaki, even if they invoke that, that as, a, as an analogy. So it's not about that. But the, the, the two of the, uh, of the advantages of war communism as an analogy is that one, the Bolsheviks were very much prepared to depose permanently dominant classes that stood in the way of dealing with the emergency. This involved socializing companies uh, without compensation, and it involved things like uh, taking um, uh, the, the luxury apartments of rich people and giving them to poor people and things like that. That didn't quite happen during the Second World War. And the, but these are precisely the things that we will need to do in the decades ahead if we want to address global heating at its root. But uh, your, your concern is specifically with the fossil fuel sectors of the economy. Well, yes. Uh, but we could also look at uh, the drivers of Zunurik spillover, of those diseases where you, you will have... Uh, at the end of the day, if you want to do anything about the fact that you have more of those diseases popping up in, in contemporary world, you will have to address, first of all, the problem of deforestation. Now, currently, we're seeing exactly the opposite trend, particularly in Latin America, where capital is having uh, uh, you know, a free-for-all in the central part of the continent and burning and destroying rainforests at a speed we've never seen before. This is absolutely cataclysmic for climate because these forests normally store and sequester a lot of CO2 and all that CO2 is instead emitted. And it's, it's disastrous because it uh, very likely induces more zoonotic spillover because these forests normally uh, serve as vast uh, ecosystemic reservoirs for pathogens. And when you cut them down, those pathogens spill out into the surroundings. So if you want to stop this from happening, you need to, uh, uh, um, you need to exercise coercive power over and against the companies, the capitalists that are responsible for this kind of destruction. And uh, that means breaking the power of the meat companies and uh, other entrepreneurs that go in and destroy those forests. That I, I can't see that anyone else in states could potentially do that, and that entails a, a, a breaking uh, of of uh, the freedoms of private property uh, in a way more analogous to what you saw after October 1917 than what you saw after Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, I, I, hi, Andres, it's Alex here. I mean, yeah, no doubt, uh, certainly here in Brazil, um, Bolsonaro has unleashed the most retrograde sections of capital. Um, but I think we should maybe turn to uh, the politics of today and particularly the political forms and organizations which might uh, might or might not see through uh, some, of these, uh, some of these political responses. So, I mean, a lot of, I think listeners will be familiar with some of the political models proposed by ecologists and green activists. Um, such as global courts, citizens' assemblies, uh, which were put forward by Extinction Rebellion, uh, NGO regulatory capture in the EU. Uh, and I think, you know, James Lovelock, the Gaia theorist, wished for a global dictator to enforce decarbonization and biodiversity protection. And for me, looking at it, all of these share uh, a unifying factor, which is an, an attempt to get around the problem of mass democracy. Uh, so, I mean, how is your solution different to these other supposedly radical solutions? Uh, what's your relationship with, with democracy effectively? <laughs> yeah, so uh, let me just say that I don't deal with this issue uh, at length in this book. I, I have another book coming up in a few months called The How to Blow Up a 
plant learning to fight in a world on fire which is uh, all about the climate movement and how we struggle from below how we organize what tactics we use and things like that so if this book comes across as very state-centric if you like or focused all on on the state and what it should do I think th this next book will be uh, rather uh, have the, the, the opposite, give the opposite impression that there it's, it's all about the activists. Now, uh, there, there is a gap between these two books, perhaps, because I don't have any clear idea or program for how mass democracy from the below, from below, uh, in particular on, on the climate front, would uh, be transformed into state power. So, you know, the, the classical uh, Leninist uh, idea was that uh, popular democracy workers, democracy councils, Soviets in, uh, in Russia and, and the Rete, the, the councils in Germany, th those uh, institutions of dual power would uh, become effectively the new state apparatus. Now, it, it, I think, uh, I, I find it hard to see that anything that the climate movement would even hypothetically be able, be capable of building could uh, in itself be transformed into a new state apparatus that could succeed, that could, you know, smash the old bourgeois state apparatus or whatever and become the new one. And I, and I don't really see that workers' council, uh, councils of that kind are on the agenda. But I might, I might suffer from uh, from uh, cons from restricted uh, vision here. I mean, some some comrades point out that in in situations of of, uh, of social crisis and even collapse, you have initiatives from below. Uh, you 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 have um, neighborhood committees, uh, you know stepping up to the, the challenges of, of provisioning people, uh, satisfying people's most basic needs. And those uh, kind of uh, popular initiatives can potentially <coughs> um, grow into more institutionalized forms. Uh, what the, the level where I operate in, in those two books is rather this one. We have existing states that are very far from the kind of states we'd like to see because of their... Uh, partly because of their very severe democratic deficits. They are sort of degenerated bourgeois democracies where the rule of capital is completely unchallenged and just, just institutionalized in our states. But those are the states that we have. Now, we, we, we face a situation where we're very short of time and we have, we're very pressed for time and we have to get some sort of mitigation of uh, global heating in particular going. It should have happened years and decades ago, but it really has to happen now and very soon and very radically. But these are the states that we have. How then can it happen? Well, uh, what I can see is that you, you can potentially, at least, hypothetically envision a scenario where governments, uh, perhaps most easily, the, 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 this can be uh, imagined in Europe because that's where the climate movement has been uh, most powerful so far, and where some governments have proved themselves susceptible to pressure from the climate movement. You could consider the scenario where the climate movement uh, jumps scale and becomes stronger and more radical by orders of magnitude than, than we were last year, and compel states to start closing coal mines and uh, oil wells and gas pipelines and instituting those very radical emissions cuts that we need. So the, the argument here would be that the, the impetus, the initiative would have to come from below through some kind of organized mass democracy, if you like. But uh, I personally find it uh, hard to see that we would, uh, at least in the short run, overwhelm existing states and constitute ourselves as, as states in the way that the Soviets did, for instance, in, in, in October 1917. So the, the democratic level in, in my short-term strategic or tactical vision even is uh, on the level of grassroots popular pressure on states to do what is necessary. 
Uh, and I, 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 I try to elaborate on this in the, in, the, in the pipeline book, and I draw quite a lot on the experience of, of climate camps and, and the Galenda and the German climate movement, which is where I've uh, had most of my inspiring experiences of the past few years, uh, whereas I'm pretty critical of Extinction Rebellion that you mentioned. Uh, and the, the James Lovelock idea of, of, uh, of an ecological dictatorship, uh, I, I, I renounce. Uh, and uh, to, to do some more self-promotion uh, here, I have another book coming out with the Zetkin Collective in May in English called White Skin, Black Fuel on the Danger of uh, Fossil Fascism, where we deal quite extensively with the danger of uh, uh, authoritarian and fascist solutions, uh, or rather pseudo-solutions to the climate crisis, including uh, uh, various uh, versions of ecological fascism. Mm -hmm. uh, I, yeah, so I, I totally reject that, of course, and consider that a very dangerous path to go down. And but so, Lovelock is crazy in, in a lot of ways. <laughs> no, no disagreement there. Um, just I know George has got a question, but just before that, I just wanted to push you a bit more, Andreas, because the yeah. okay. So you, you know, you you renounce you renounce kind of um, Lovelock's idea, and you're uh, concerned about the prospect of. Um, as you say, of eco-fascism or pseudo-solutions, as you put them, that might be authoritarian. Um, you admit that you have no kind of, that the kind of middle part between the uh, the kind of the state-centric vision that you offer in this one and the more radical kind of um, bottom-up politics that you offer in your forthcoming pipeline book, that you don't mediate between the two. I suppose then... Um, and, you know, I mean, it's obviously it's the recurrent question for all left politics is the absence of that kind of mass movement yeah. at the core. So, yeah. um, you know, that's no different, I suppose, to to any kind of radical project of the day. I suppose yeah. the the connected concern is that isn't there a risk, though, that in the absence of that movement, no matter how... Um, whatever the particular ideals and how cautious and uh, wary you might be of um, the pitfalls and traps along the way that the either that, um, you know, popular movements end up being hijacked by established and organized interests or that they effectively become that the content for these movements um, is given by other forces rather than that they become kind of vessels effectively for existing um, status quo interests in the absence of any kind of transformative mass movement that is capable of sustaining and um, maintaining the momentum of radical politics. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 of course there is a risk. There are all sorts of risks for all sorts of failure and degeneration here. Uh, the, 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 the most uh, imminent risk is that there is no mitigation of, uh, of the climate crisis, no meaningful measures to reduce fossil fuel consumption and phase it out and terminate it as quickly as required. And we, we just, I mean, we we fall into the abyss of, uh, of, of runaway global heating and who knows where that will end. I mean, the, the, these processes are already kicking in at such a frightful speed. So that that risk is, I mean, it's, it's almost already, it's on the verge of being realized. Uh, is there a risk that that uh, very radical uh, policies coming from states hypothetically tackling this problem head on would also unleash uh, various kinds of authoritarian politics? Yes, that risk does exist. And that's uh, something we need to be, be intensely aware of and, uh, and deal with in various ways. Now... If, if I can expand here a little bit, I think that this uh, climate breakdown and the ecological crisis generally is, I, I don't think that it is conducive to utopian politics, to, uh, to, to deep democratic advances. Rather, it's a situation that is precisely filled with risks of various kinds. Now, one risk is that we'll have Adaptation emergencies, one after another, including population displacement. You could easily, I mean, I mean people have, have uh, discussed this for a long time. You could easily see millions of people 
moving, let's say, towards Europe when, for instance, the Nile Delta is submerged by rising seas or something like that. And then you have the scenario of 2015, but on a much vaster scale. What, what is the likely response? Well, uh, you know, on, on current trends, you'll have the, 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 the Tory government in the, in, the, in the UK shooting down refugees uh, coming uh, towards uh, British shores. I mean, th this is what the, the current trends point towards, right? You, you'll have the politics of the armed lifeboat, as Christian Parenti uh, has called it. So all, all very high risk for authoritarian uh, violence in such uh, uh, an adaptation emergency. On the other hand, you have a risk that states will eventually freak out about global heating and grasp for some kind of measure that can quickly reduce temperatures. Because even our capitalist states will eventually reach a point where they can't cope with the, uh, the stress of an overheated world. And there is only one known measure that can potentially rapidly reduce temperatures, and that is solar radiation management, also known as sulfate aerosol injection, or well, that's the, the, the most uh, uh, probable method of it. So you spew sulfate aerosols suit into the stratosphere to create a kind of an uh, umbrella to reduce the incoming sunlight and thereby reduce temperatures. Now, it's, it's, it's evident that there is an immense risk that, that the agent who conducts uh, solar radiation management will concentrate planetary power in his hands. The power to regulate climate on Earth, and it's very unlikely that uh, a temperature reduction by means of solar uh, geoengineering will uh, benefit everyone to the same degree. So if, if, let's say, it's the Pentagon that does it, Pentagon is quite unlikely to have, let's say, the, the interests of the Indian peasant masses closest to heart when it starts geoengineering on that scale. Um, this is George here. I just wanted to draw something out, and you might have been going into saying it um, anyway. But just, I guess, to relate it back to to your project, because you've you've you know talking about the risk of authoritarianism here um, yeah. and the necessity of some coercive authority. How in in what you'd advocate? How do you, I guess, um, tread that line between? the necessity of defending freedom and then as you put it the sort of necessity of coercive authority i mean because i think any communist project obviously has to have freedom as uh, sure. completely central yeah sure well the point about it is that and this was what i wanted to end with here if if you if you announce a mitigation emergency and you say that we are facing this very dire situation and the only way to minimize the damage and the pain and the suffering is to phase out fossil fuels as fast as possible. Then there is still a risk for authoritarian tendencies, but it's much smaller than in the other scenarios, because what you need to do to begin with, as I uh, argue in the book, is to socialize energy production and to, more specifically, nationalize all oil and gas and coal companies that are not publicly owned and force them, here's the element of coercion, to stop producing fossil fuels. And uh, as I suggest, and as others, of course, have, have argued, transform these entities into publicly owned companies for drawing down CO2. The point here is that the coercion in such a program needs to be applied to a small segment of the population. Or just take the, the recent report from, from Oxfam that said that 1% of humanity since 1990 has emitted more than twice as much as the poorest half of the species. So the richest 1% emits more than twice as much as the poorest 50%. This is the, the small segment of uh, our species that is devastating this planet. And it's against them that coercive measures need to be applied. And that's basically the formula for communism. So, I mean, uh, Andreas, that, that, yeah. sorry to just to jump in, yeah. but I mean, I'm, no, you know, yeah. I'm fine with that uh, as far as that goes. I guess my worry would be that dealing with climate change or any kind of um, push to, to adopt these measures without the working class 
or the masses, however you wish to put it, um, playing a leading role in the political process might be actually worse than doing nothing. Um, basically, that it's, it's the masses are bust. That, that the alternative uh, would be one in which uh, the capitalist classes take the opportunity, um, take the, the material that is proposed to them in terms of dealing with climate change, but is done in a way which is completely regressive. So that if you don't have uh, the working class organized militant and be able to put pressure and it being able to insist at least on red lines in terms of, you know, you're not allowed to cut our consumption further. Um, or you know, cut our wages further, or however, whatever, whatever anti-popular measures might be uh, undertaken by by the powers that be. Without that, you will end up with a, a disaster scenario where you have perhaps still inadequate measures to really deal with climate change, albeit perhaps more than you currently have. Uh, while at the same time, empowering elites to pursue really anti-popular measures, um, whether that's in uh, poor countries to prevent any any development, or in rich countries in terms of exerting further downward pressure on wages on incomes and living standards so i guess that's my worry with with uh yeah yeah i understand the worry although i'm hesitant to say that uh, the scenario you depict would be worse than doing nothing because doing nothing means basically the end of everything so there, it's hard to, to see anything being worse than that Doing nothing, just letting global heating continue uh, unmitigated means the end of civilization as we know. Uh, but you're absolutely right about the need of, of mass um, uh, movements and working class agency. Uh, now, my argument is precisely that nothing will be done by states of their own initiative. Th this is what the last three decades of... Mm of sabotage, of mitigation, and of postponement and procrastination and delays uh, indicate. States are incapable of doing anything on their own. Nothing will happen unless there is pressure from the climate movement and its allies, which, and those allies must include the organized working class or what's left of it in, in our countries. Uh, now, uh, none of my books deal very, uh, 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 very much in depth with the, the problem of working class agency here. I'm fortunate to have a close comrade, Matt Huber, who's writing precisely on this and is coming out with a book uh, on how we think about working class uh, uh, agency and struggle in the, the, the fight for climate justice. It's coming out next year from Verso. So uh, I, I would recommend everyone, he's written on it already, I would recommend everyone to, to look at his work if you want an intellectual approach to, to this particular problem. Now, let me just say that the, uh, um, the school strikes that happened last year can, in a sense, be understood as, a, as, as one kind of uh, you know, experiment in mass industrial action, if you like, although it's, it's, it was obviously mostly students that struck. Uh, but you had elements, particularly in the country where those strikes became by far the most popular, namely Germany, uh, you had an elements of union, trade union participation where Verdi, one of the, the biggest trade unions in Germany, got involved with, with that strike movement in the end. And that, that's some suggestion uh, of what needs to be done, although uh, clearly you had unions hostile to the movement, notably uh, the metal workers unions. And it's not as easy to forge that alliance between the organized working class and the climate movement as we'd like it to be. It's, it's a complex thing that we in the climate movement have struggled with for a long time, but that is clearly absolutely essential to making any, any kind of progress. So I, I totally agree with you on that. I mean, uh, I guess the, the follow on then from that would, you know, if we want unions perhaps involved, is that how do you enlist the masses in a project which promises them a better life, or 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 is it or is that have you ruled that out as a possibility? That we will have a better life. Yeah, that we'll have it just appealing to people's material interests. That they'll have an easier life. Uh, they'll have a better life. They'll have more material wealth. Well, let, let's, well let me well, let me jump well, in because this, if I could, Andreas, because this connects to something that you say directly in the book is that you discuss the um, the salvage critique, so the critique developed by Salvage magazine here in the UK of uh, the notion of luxury communism, and yeah. um, you distance yourself from that kind of, or you seem to at least, if I've read you rightly, that you distance yourself from that classical notion of a communism, which is um, a communism of kind of liberation and abundance and leisure. Yeah. And you um, 
you even you seem to suggest that it's naive and childish in the circumstances of eco collapse. Um, so, I mean, so I suppose two things though. Uh, what's so the Bolsheviks themselves never renounced it, despite that, despite the kind of um, the succession of um, terrible and terrifying crises they confronted. Um, but how do you envisage this? How do you envisage? Um, Maintaining this as a kind of as a popular project, this communism of collective limit and restraint. If you if you cut away the the kind of the old humanist aspiration, how do you make it still a humanist project rather than one of um, simply conserving conserving the environment or conserving nature? Well, I I, I certainly don't think that I cut away the humanist aspirations, uh, and I. I, I write it in this book that a, a transition away from fossil fuels, as comrades have argued for years, would open up all sorts of possibilities for people's lives to become more fulfilling, less uh, plagued by overwork, uh, more uh, convivial, more communal. And, and uh, I, I draw a, a distinction early on in the book between uh, this this political project and the uh, the the pain, frankly, of living under lockdown, uh, and I argue that uh, a climate transition need not involve uh, that kind of quite uh, uh, I mean quite quite uh, painful sacrifice of having to stay indoors for months on end that we've had to endure in, in parts of Europe uh, recently. Yeah, so uh, I, 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 I I dispute that reading or my argument that I think that uh, we'll have what it means to avoid complete climate collapse is to make our lives worse. I don't make that argument. Well, to begin with, it makes it, 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 what it means is that we fight to live at all, which is very much in the material interests, particularly of the people that, that don't benefit from fossil fuel production, including uh, the, 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 vast, uh, uh, the vast majority of, the, of humanity, so, which is the uh, working people. No, I accept that. And I didn't, yeah. you know, and I didn't mean to, um, you know, I didn't mean to mischaracterize. I suppose my, my, um, my question is, to, it's a more abstract question, I suppose, about um, the the balance between human advancement and interest, and um, the introduction of other kinds of um, limits to that interest. I suppose. So, yeah. I mean, you know, I take what you're saying now, but you do. I mean, or I mean, at least as far as as far as I understood, you do explicitly distance yourself from luxury communism. Definitely, because I think I think I mean the, the, uh, I'm sorry to say it, but I think that fully automated luxury communism, that book, is childish. I think that it's it's juvenile and it's based on on fantasies about going to asteroids and you know transcending all limits to human mastery of nature and uh, you know swimming in extreme supply, a key term in that book. Of all sorts of goods, I don't think that that it is this the reality that we are facing. We are facing a situation of shortages of critical goods, including land mass to live on, because we have sea level rise in motion that is already uh, eroding coastlines around the world. I mean, who's going to tell people in in Mauritius or in in uh, in the Kiribati or any of the other low-lying islands, that they are on the verge of total abundance. That's not the, the, the situation that subalterns and, and propertyless masses are on the verge of uh, on this planet. We should, of course, we would hope that that was the case. And we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't write off the possibility that that could be the case in the future. But the situation we're facing now, and that's where we as communists, who are interested in trying to satisfy everyone's basic needs, that's the, the, the reality that we need to face up to, that we are losing biophysical resources at a frightful speed. And those are the only resources that we know that we as humans on this planet, not on Mars, not on the asteroids, but on this planet, need to uh, satisfy our needs. So I've got one, um, I've got one question, too, which is somewhat... Um... Uh, a tad involved, but it cuts to again. It kind of cuts to this issue of how do you conceptualize the, or how do we understand the role of the of uh, humanity in this? I suppose so. Um, 
you, I mean, you talk about the way in which, so the Bol- and one thing that you kind of valorize about the Bolsheviks is, or the radical politics of um, Marxism in the early tw- 20th century, is that they explicitly address the drivers rather than the symptoms of the catastrophes with which they were dealing. And so in that case, it was the um, uh, bloody imperial rivalries that led to the war. And it was this that they explicitly kind of set out to address. And so you draw this analogy with the devastation, which is wrought on the environment, um, from fossil capital to deforestation for cocoa, palm oil, beef, um, bushmeat, trade in exotic species, and so on. But so one, so I mean, one point that I think is important in, in that kind of traditional Leninist attack on the imperialist um, world order was also that it had the progressive dynamic, that it had the dynamic of socializing and concentrating production, and that it, in fact, the very process of um, uh, the emergence of monopoly capitalism from the previous social structures, earlier kind of forms of capitalist production, that it laid the ground for the possibility of a more integrated world and also for the substitution of proletarian for capitalist rule. Um, So I wondered if you would see any similar kind of dialectical parallels of progress in the contemporary capitalist relationship to nature. And I hope that question is not too involved yes. and you get it. My no, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I mean, th- this is the, the core of the argument that Naomi Klein and others have, have made for a long time, that if we want to deal with the climate crisis seriously, that implies virtually by definition breaking with the ex- existing order and, and the, the property relations that we have. So uh, her argument, of course, is that there is a, a, a potential for a utopian twist to this story. That's the logic of this changes everything. If, if we were to, uh, to face on fossil fuels, we would have to move towards a much more, um, uh, how should I put it, uh, an economy that is much more under the control of uh, uh, of the people of the of the public of uh, of the state and uh, hopefully a more more democratically um, constituted state than what we have now. So uh, you're you're absolutely right that there is that dialectical dialectical potential to this crisis situation as well. And uh, one very I mean one one very simple start for that dialectic would be precisely socializing energy companies and uh, make them produce energy in a way that doesn't destroy the foundations for for collective life on this planet and that that is that isn't necessarily full-blown communism by by any means but it's uh, it's a break with uh, a core section of the capitalist class It, it breaks down the power of that section and who knows where that will lead us in the end? And that, that's the logic of, of transitional demands and the way that, uh, yeah, classical Bolshevik policy politics as well. You start by raising very simple demands that speak to the, the present emergency, uh, notably an end to the war and land and bread uh, to the hungry uh, peasants and workers. And satisfying these demands by definition require transcending the present order. And I think uh, meaningful radical climate politics has the same explosive logic to it, which is precisely why uh, so important segments of the capitalist class and and the right for decades have denied the existence of this crisis. And this is also a point that Naomi Klein has made, that they so, know that once we've recognized this crisis and its severity, we have to move in a direction that, that leads towards something like socialism or more of it, at least. The, so the dialect, the kind of the dialectic I had in mind um, in response, though, is, was slightly different. So I, you okay. could make the case. So the same way, you know, if we take the parallel of war communism, if we make or... Yeah you know, early kind of radical politics um, around the Bolshevik era and so on. We make the case that, um, you know, this tremendous kind of concentration of production, um, the integration of the global economy, the um, expansion and inclusion of um, remote areas of, um, of the world into a single kind of space, the incorporation of, um, of rural areas of the world, um, the absorption of former mm. peasantry into, um, into the urban kind of industrial proletariat, the breakdown of rural idiocy, um, that these were the kind of progressive aspects of, um, 
of uh, monopoly capitalism. And it was the transformation of this into a new kind of socialist order that would redeem that promise. And so I suppose the parallel here would be that the enormous kind of concentration of humanity um, is that it has a progressive dimension, that the expansion of, um, of human need has a progressive dimension. And though, you know, I'm, I mean, I share your kind of skepticism towards some of the kind of greater, more absurd flights of fancy and luxury communism, but that the, surely that the, the mastery of human nature and environment that is implicit in climate change, because the point is, I suppose, of climate change is ultimately that we control the climate, except that we do not do it in a way that is um, rational or in our, in our own long-term interests. Mm. And so mm. it's not the transformation to recognize rather than to recoil from the consequences of the fact that we effectively, that we manipulate the climate to such an extent that we effectively control it, but we do not um, draw the full kind of social and political implications of the extent of those kind of godlike powers. So that would be my kind of dialectical parallel. But is that something that you would um, agree with or oppose? I, 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 would, I would perhaps phrase it slightly differently, but uh, substantially I agree with you. And uh, I do so by, for instance, advocating um, uh, direct air capture and other forms of drawdown of CO2 as necessary parts of this transition. Uh, and uh, I, 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 I'm not even capable of, of uh, I wouldn't rule out solar geoengineering in every scenario. So I am open to the, the, the need to use large scale technologies to uh, undo the damage of global heating and try to take the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere down to levels like 380, 350 parts per million, or even further, if possible and uh, and necessary, and that is yes, you're right. That's that's a way of of uh, mastering the climate, if you like, but it's also a way of of renouncing uh, the idea that hum that humanity can do whatever it wants with nature, because it it, it would also include. Um, very important components of things like rewilding and restoring natural uh, ecosystems uh, and stepping back from them rather than uh, reveling in mastery and domination as some, uh, you know, th there is that streak in, in classical uh, revolutionary Marxism of, uh, uh, of, you know, we're going to move the mountains as, as Trotsky wrote and we're going to reroute the rivers and uh, and just completely embrace total human domination of nature. I think that it's that's a profoundly bourgeois legacy that 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 found a home in Marxism, but that that the more progressive strands of Marxism combated quite early on, and that we need to break with. And that's also why I I find it very difficult to accept some of the formulations in, in fully automated luxury communism about mastery of nature because it's such an extremely problematic. Concept and material phenomena, uh, but uh, the emergency means it's it's so serious, it's so severe that that it means that we don't have the luxury to uh, to um, uh, by definition abstain from from large scale technological intervention into the climate system. So maybe as a way of drilling down onto the question of um, mastery of nature, um, and maybe we can look at splitting the atom as one uh, mode of that. So, I mean, I, I read you discuss um, some direct action against uh, coal, and I think that sounds fine. You know, uh, you cite the example of uh, the, the, the German sort of direct action, Ende Gelände. Uh, but, but for me, reading that, what was missing was, well, okay, but what are you going to substitute that with? And for me, uh, nuclear power would uh, would be precisely a very smart way of staving off global warming and precisely one that wouldn't rely on the market because it's simply the market won't step up um, and fulfill that. So what is your position on nuclear? <laughs> yeah, so I have the agnostic position on nuclear. I think that it's not the problem, but I don't think it's the solution either. And the, the, the reason that it's not the solution is primarily that it can't be rolled out and scaled up as fast as we need it. 
uh, you, it's, it's much easier to rapidly replace fossil fuels with solar and wind. These are cheaper and they are much easier to build and construct in a short span of time than new generations of nuclear facilities. That's precisely why the market is loath to take them up because these facilities are so very expensive and take so long time to build. And that doesn't change if the, if the state does it instead. Now, uh, I, I'm of course criticized from the, uh, the other flank, uh, including uh, comrades in, in, the, in the movements in France and Germany that have for decades um, struggled against nuclear power, but I think that is uh, a mistake in the present situation. I think that the left, uh, as everyone else, needs to um, revise some preconceptions and and uh, uh, and and old positions, and uh, acknowledge that in this moment in history, nuclear power simply isn't the problem. And I think that our French comrades should actually be pretty grateful that their electricity sector is based on nuclear and not on coal as in Germany, because they have far, far lower emissions mm. from their uh, electricity yeah, sector. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think it's the solution. So maybe just a, um, a final question um, on what comes next, because I think you're absolutely right that coronavirus has, or the response to the pandemic has just completely junked neoliberal common sense about state intervention. And so in one sense, there's a situation that seems very open, a lot could happen, what's going to follow on from this from this kind of, um, this new role that the state potentially could, could take. Um, and that we've obviously talked about um, this evening, but I guess given everything that we've we've talked about in terms of the difficulty of finding an agent to implement any radical project yeah. at the moment, what do you? I mean, maybe just talk us through what, what do you see the next steps that states in their current situation are likely to take? I mean, are we going to see vaccines? Do you think is this something to hope for or defend? Put our our faith in that, or is there a sliver of hope that um, you, you know, from your point of view, of a massively expanded and ultimately successful? climate movement that can, I guess, implement some of the things that we've been um, talking about this evening? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, let, let's, let's also admit that the situation politically is so volatile and it, it yeah. will become more volatile the deeper this chronic emergency becomes. That we don't know if all of a sudden there is an opening, there is a break, there is a rupture of some kind. I mean, we, we've had hopes or glimmers of hopes for the past years, I mean, I lapsed into hope when uh, when it when it looked like Jeremy Corbyn would potentially become the next uh, prime minister in the UK. Mm. Uh, and uh, in in the last in the election last year, the the the, the program that Labour the manifesto was in terms of climate politics, in my view, just extraordinary. Uh, and I lapsed again into hope when, when Bernie Sanders won in Nevada. And I mean, if we'd had Jeremy Corbyn as a prime minister now and we'd had Bernie, Bernie Sanders instead of Joe Biden, we'd be in a completely different political situation uh, where we'd have some real potential for state action in, in, in alliance and in, in conjunction with popular movements that, that would maintain the pressure, potentially. I mean, th this is a contrafactual scenario now because we lost on both those fronts mm. and we were defeated again. But who knows? I mean, wh where, where are we in two years? We don't know, we don't know anything. We don't know what, what political formations that might emerge. Uh, uh, but, uh, I mean, we have to keep on struggling and fighting, and th this is uh, one of the arguments that I make in the Pipeline book towards the end, against uh, people uh, that, that, that argue that we are so deep into the shit of climate crisis that we basically just have to learn to die and learn to give up. <laughs> And mm -hmm. uh, this sort of climate fatalism that has become uh, slightly fashionable in, in some circles. I, I resist that. And uh, to be honest, I loathe that position. And uh, we, we need to continue struggling. I, I don't see, I mean, I mean, I don't see that next week, uh, a state anywhere in the world that we know, uh, any state that we know of will uh, step up to the game and do what's necessary. I, I, I can't say that I see any sign of that uh, of that kind of agent materializing in the short uh, in the short. But who knows? I mean, Bolsonaro. If, if Bolsonaro is is replaced by a new uh, new Labour government, perhaps deforestation can come to an end. 
as it did when when Lula originally it took over. Mm. I mean, who knows? We'd be happy to get rid of Bolsonaro for many reasons, uh, just be yeah. <laughs> well beyond yeah. that. Sure. Um, sure. But I think we'll leave that there. Thank you so much, Andreas. That was a really interesting discussion. And there's a with great clarity uh, about the questions and limits. And I think you present really a sophisticated, a sophisticated view, um, which, uh, which I think is, is, is commendable, really. Um, though, on the other hand, I think it'd be no surprise for listeners to hear that we have a, a more Promethean vision of mastery than, than you do, um, one where yeah, mass yeah, living yeah, standards are defended yeah. in advance. But nevertheless, thank you so much for taking the time, Andreas. Thank you, comrades. And you asked all the, the, the right and the difficult questions. And uh, yeah, you were the sophisticated well, ones here. <laughs> well, good stuff. We might have to have you back on uh, when the new book is out as well. Yeah.